Oh, you're leaving. Thus begins what is probably the most emotionally affecting moment in all of Ocarina of Time. Link is setting out on his quest to meet with Princess Zelda. A rope bridge spanning a forest glade leads out of the forest. There's no music, only the sound of forest life. Soraya seemingly appears out of thin air. Was she always there? Link has been warned that the Kokiri who leave the forest will die, and yet Link isn't like the other Kokiri. I knew that you would leave the forest someday, because you are different from me and my friends, Soraya says. She knows, however, that despite their differences and the different paths that they must take, she and Link will remain friends. She gives Link an ocarina. When you play my ocarina, Soraya says, I hope you will think of me and come back to the forest to visit. Link, as always, says nothing. He slowly backs away before departing to truly begin a quest that will take him all across Hyrule. This is Legendary Adventures Podcast, and this week we're traveling to Castletown, Hyrule Castle, Kakariko Village, Death Mountain, and Dodongo's Cavern. It's our first steps into the wider world of Hyrule. Well, we'll take those steps after a conversation with a friendly owl. This is Kepora Gabora. The Ocarina of Time features an owl is a clear nod to Link's awakening. Ocarina of Time is the first game in the series to feature a true companion character for Link in the form of Navi, but we can see the developers don't fully have the concept locked down just yet, leading to the inclusion of a second helper in the form of Kepora Gabora. He tells Link the castle is straight ahead, then turns players loose to run through the wide open Hyrule field. I've lost count of how many Ocarina of Time retrospectives I've seen where the author describes feeling a sense of awe at the sheer scope of Hyrule Field when they first saw it, and I recall feeling no such thing my first time playing this game. What struck me most was the reveal of Ocarina of Time's day and night cycle. I didn't make it to the castle before the sun set. The drawbridge raised, the music stopped, and I was stuck outside to fend off attacks from the stalled children enemies while I waited for the sun to rise again. <laughs> This is the first game that I experienced with a true day and night cycle. I had played other games such as Donkey Kong Country, which featured day and night transitions as sort of a graphical showcase, but they had no impact on the gameplay. This did. I tried to learn more about the history of day and night cycles in games. Detailed information is surprisingly scarce, but the concept wiki on Giant Bomb suggests the 1978 arcade racer Super Speed Race 5 was the first video game to feature a day night cycle but it offers no details on how it works. There are some screenshots that show the car driving with headlights on, however. A few other racing games in the early 80s are also listed as having day and night cycles. A pair of 1983 releases appear to be the first video games outside of racing games to feature day and night cycles. A Falcom-developed open-world action RPG called Panorama Toe and an adventure game from Enix called Zarth are both listed as having day and night cycles. 
The concept wasn't new by the time Ocarina of Time introduced it to the Zelda series, but it was the first time I personally had seen it. Castletown itself is full of life. There are several non-player characters who provide hints or world-building flavor text. There are shops, there are mini-games to play, but not all are available at this point. That includes the Happy Mash Shop, which isn't yet open for business. It represents a fairly significant side quest for this past portion of the game. Players will also meet Malin in Castletown, a young girl who runs Lon Lon Ranch with her father. It will also be suggested that players will need to sneak into the castle to meet Zelda. Security to the castle has been increased thanks to one of the two laughing men near the entrance to Castletown's Market Square. Exiting Castletown to the north, players will be greeted by the Owl, who explains a unique quirk to the day-night cycle in Ocarina of Time. The clock stops whenever Link is inside a town or equivalent area. Before entering the castle, players will need an item from Malin. She's not here outside of Castletown at the moment, I understand it's possible to get her to move this location by re-entering Castletown and then exiting, but I let myself get caught by a castle guard. Once thrown back outside the castle gates, I was able to speak to Malin. She said her father went to the castle and hadn't returned. She gives Link an egg. Now it's time to really sneak into the castle. This is the first in a number of stealth sequences. Stealth will become a repeated element included in some form or another in most Zelda releases following Ocarina of Time. Players must first stay out of sight of the guards and climb a vine-covered wall to enter the castle grounds. Inside the castle grounds, players will find Talon, the father of Malin. He is sleeping and blocking the path forward. As the sun rises the day after getting the egg, it hatches into a rooster. Players can use this rooster as an item to make it crow and wake Talon to make him move. Players can then move a pair of blocks to reach a pathway into the castle walls. Here, players need to stay out of sight of the guard to get into the castle courtyard. There are rupees outlining some additional challenges for those who wish to take them on, but they are optional. Inside the castle courtyard, players will meet Princess Zelda. She is looking through the castle window. Once she realizes Link is there, she immediately recognizes him as a figure from a prophetic dream she had. She also explains that the Triforce is contained within the Sacred Realm, the entrance to which is inside the Temple of Time. It can only be opened with three spiritual stones and the Master Sword. In a nod back to the original game, she urges Link to keep that information a secret from everyone. Zelda also explains her prophetic dream had a warning about Ganondorf, the King of the Gerudo, and his treachery. Her father does not believe her dream to be prophecy. Link sees Ganondorf through the window, paying fealty to the King. As he takes a knee, he turns to look at Link. Zelda then tasks Link to travel to the Gorons of Death Mountain and the Zoras of their Zora Domain to obtain the remaining two spiritual stones. She gives him a letter that will allow him to proceed up Death Mountain. As players turn to leave, they will be met by Impa. This is the first time Zelda's maid has been visualized in a game. Some form of Impa played a key role in the first two games, but only within the pages of the manual. This version of Impa is a member of the Sheikah tribe, a mysterious race who serves the royal family of Hyrule. She teaches Link his first ocarina song, Zelda's Lullaby. The song is key to opening many locations. She then directs Link to Kakariko Village. 
A guard at the gates of Kakariko explains that it was once a village of the Sheikah, but Impa opened it to all. Kakariko Village features a number of homes, a well in the center of town, and a windmill on the hill. Behind the village is a graveyard. Inside the village, we find the House of Skultala. This is Ocarina of Time's equivalent to the Seashell Mansion in Link's Awakening. Players will come to the House of Skultala to get rewards for collecting Gold Skultala tokens. The house is occupied by a family which is cursed by the Gold Skultalas. It has turned them into spiders. Players are told that they don't have to collect the tokens, but they will be made rich if they do. After collecting 10 tokens, Link will be rewarded with an adult wallet. After 20 tokens, players will get the Stone of Agony, or the Shard of Agony in the 3DS version. This is used to find secret grottos hidden in the world map. 30 tokens gives the player another wallet expansion, the Giant's Wallet. 40 grants the player 10 bomb shoes. 50 grants a piece of heart. This is, in my opinion, the biggest reward from the Gold Sculptula quest. There are 100 spiders in total, but only 50 are really needed to be found. This is in line with the secret seashells in Link's Awakening. In a change from that quest, it's possible to find all 100. Finding all 100 essentially grants the players unlimited money. Players can collect 200 rupees each time they visit the House of Skultula. But by the time players achieve 100 tokens, it'll be late in game, and the majority opinion seems to be that the prize is pretty worthless by that point. There are a few other goodies to round up in Kakariko Village. That includes the first bottle of the game. Players need to round up chickens for a woman in distress to claim it. In the graveyard behind the village, players can get an additional song for the ocarina. A large gravestone at the far end of the graveyard marks the royal family's tomb. A Triforce symbol on the ground offers a clue on what to do. Playing Zelda's lullaby triggers a storm, and the gravestone is destroyed, revealing a hole. In a crypt below, players will find bats and zombie-like creatures called Redeads. They'll also find the notes to the Sun Song, which allows players to change day to night, and vice versa on command. This song can also be used to freeze undead creatures. Another gravestone closer to the entrance has flowers growing in front of it indicating a secret. Pulling this stone open reveals a grotto with a treasure chest. It holds a Hylian shield. Players would have to buy this shield otherwise. As a child, Link can equip the shield, but because of its large size, he ducks under it rather than raising it. On the north end of Kakariko Village, players present the guard with Zelda's letter to open the gate to Death Mountain. On the mountain, players will meet the Gorons, a race of creatures who are made of stone and eat rocks. The Gorons lament that their primary food source, Dodongo's Cavern, is blocked by a giant stone. The Gorons say that they are close to starving to death because they are picky about which rocks they eat. Their leader, Darunia, locked himself in his room and he will only open the door for a royal messenger. Darunia is yet another reference to Zelda II. He's named for the town in the mountains of Hyrule's eastern continent. We can meet him by playing Zelda's lullaby. But Darunia refuses to speak to Link. We need to find a way to make him talk. Other Gorons say that Darunia loves to dance, and that he loves forest music. A passageway to the Lost Woods can be opened by lighting torches to get fire to reach some bomb flowers blocking the entrance. In the Lost Woods, the owl appears, revealing the way to navigate through the woods. Players must listen to the music of the forest, 
and move through the tunnels where the volume of the music is loudest. Players can progress without using the music by walking into the tunnels a short distance. The next area will load into view on the correct path. It will not on the incorrect paths. And this will work on all doors except for the final one. After passing through the Lost Woods and a sacred forest meadow, players will meet Soraya outside the forest temple. She says this location will be important for both her and Link in the future, and teaches him Soraya's song. This is the music that we've been hearing throughout the Lost Woods. Returning to Goron City, we can play Soraya's song to lift Arunia's mood. He will actually speak to Link and promises to give him the spiritual stone, but only if he clears the monsters out of Dodongo's cavern. He gifts Link a power bracelet, allowing him to lift bomb flowers. With the bracelet, players can toss a bomb flower from above to destroy the boulder blocking the entrance to Dodongo's cavern. The music of Dodongo's cavern is creepy. It has a menace to it. There's a deep bass drone punctuated by high squeals, hisses, and industrial clangs. Again, players will notice that there's no melody as Koji Kondo was instructed to create dungeon themes without melodies. The dungeon is themed around bombs. There are bomb flowers for players to use, exploding enemies, and the dungeon item is the bomb bag, granting players the ability to place a bomb anywhere as long as they have enough in their inventory. The exploding enemies include two types of small Dodongos and Armos, the living statues seen in previous games. This dungeon also introduces the Bemos enemy to Ocarina of Time. In this game, they can be destroyed with a bomb. Players have to use a bomb flower to enter the dungeon proper. The cavern features two floors and is completed in two distinct sections. Each section is built upon looping paths. There are two looping paths in the first section and a single looping path in the second section. Players will move in and out of a central room as they tackle the first two loops. The room notably features a giant Dodongo skull on the far wall. This loop sees players start on the east side of the dungeon. As players move down the path, they will encounter small Dodongo enemies which explode when defeated. Players can use this to access an optional room containing a gold Skulltula. If they don't use the Dodongos to open the wall, and they want that Skulltula, they will have to backtrack and return with the bombs. On this first loop, players will also encounter a mini-boss fight against two Lisfalos. These enemies will fight Link one at a time and switch off after taking a few hit. The fight takes place on a grid of platforms above a pool of lava. Both Lisfalos must be defeated to move forward. The loop ends when the players step on a floor switch, opening a door on the west side of the central room. On the west side of the central room, players will find the dungeon map behind the bottom of a wall. It is possible to pick up the map before taking on the first loop. This second loop will take players to the second floor. In a standout moment, players have to place a bomb flower in the center of two rows of bomb flowers surrounding a pillar to drop that pillar down and create a staircase. Players cross over the southern end of the central room on the second floor to reach a room with many pillars and spike traps. These traps are a Zelda fixture, but the design of this room is not strong in my opinion. It features a rough grid of pillars creating a number of narrow passages. Players are encouraged to use the Z-targeting centering to see down the blind corners. There are sections like this in Ocarina of Time, and I feel that they generally don't work. 
I think the designers agreed because, to my memory, future 3D Zelda games generally avoid these trap-filled narrow passageways. In this room, players must find a block that they can move to reach a low pillar with a bomb flower on top. They will then use the bomb flower to blow open the path forward on the wall opposite the pillar. As players continue down the loop, they will have a second match with a pair of Lizalfos in a room above the first Lizalfos room. The fight plays out much the same as the first one did. While moving down the loop, players will also encounter two rooms with flames blocking the path. They're located on either side of Lizalfos room. Players must shoot ice switches with the slingshot to turn off the flames. In the 2D game, these switches likely would have been floor switches. Moving them to the walls is a way to use the 3D space. The second room also features two switches, with one located inside a resist alcove on the wall. It's a simple setup, but it's something that couldn't have been done in 2D. At the end of the loop, players will find the dungeon item, the bomb bag. It's located in the room with spike traps from earlier, but this part of the room can only be reached by moving down the looping path. After getting the bomb bag, we exit the loop back to the central room. Here, players will find a sign which reveals a clue on how to move to the second section of the dungeon. It reads, Giant Dead Dodongo. When it sees red, a new way to go will be open. This hint should tip players off to drop bombs into the eye sockets of the giant Dodongo skull on the north end of the central room. A bridge over the skull conveniently has gaps in it where Link can drop the bombs into the sockets. The skull's mouth opens, revealing a door to the second section. This section is built upon a third loop to open the boss door. The door is barred shut. A floor switch is found in a hole in the center of the room. The bars will open when the switch is pressed, but it needs constant weight in order to stay pressed. Players will have to move down the third looping path to reach an otherwise out-of-reach block. Pushing the block onto the hole opens the boss door. The boss here is King Dodongo. It's another reimagining of a boss from the original Legend of Zelda. Dodongo was the second boss of that game, and it appears as the second boss here in Ocarina of Time. There is a large pool of lava in the center of room, limiting players to a fairly narrow path on the outside of the pool. King Dodongo will noticeably inhale and then breathe fire to attack Link. Players need to throw a bomb into its mouth while it's inhaling. This will knock King Dodongo down, making it vulnerable and allowing players to land a few hits with their sword. After recovering, King Dodongo will curl into a ball and roll around the room. Players can avoid getting hit by staying near the wall or in the corners. After a few times of throwing bombs into the dinosaur's mouth and landing blows, with the sword, Dodongo falls, awarding another heart container. Outside the dungeon, Darunia appears, giving Link the spiritual stone and declaring them to be brothers. He mentions a great fairy lives atop Death Mountain. We'll head up the mountain next week before heading to Zora's domain in the third dungeon, Jabba Jabba's Belly. If you liked this episode and you haven't already, please subscribe. Please also consider sharing this podcast with a friend. And thank you to all the people who have already subscribed. I'm Paul Riley. I'll see you next week.